0: Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us tonight. Lord, give us energy where we need it. At the end of a day, middle of the week, Lord, you would give us energy to be sharp of mind and soul and uh, and alert of body and anticipating and hungry in spirit. We pray, Lord, for the blessing of your word that would not come back to you empty, but would alter us for your purposes and your work in this world. Thank you for these words. Tune us now to hear from your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 81. Tonight we begin with what could be called the Psalm of the Trumpets. The Psalm of the Trumpet. We'll jump right in. According to ancient custom, Asaph, of course, wrote this psalm, but he wrote it for the Feast of Trumpets. So that's the background of the idea behind this song. It's one of the more joyful feasts talked about in the Bible, Feast of Israel, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 24, the commandment was given, speak to the sons of Israel saying in the seventh month on the first of the month you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And I love that about the Feast of the Lord. Every time the Lord had a feast, he said, I want you to take a day off. It's holiday time. The Lord is the originator of the holiday, the holy day. The day where you don't work, you don't stress, you don't fret, you don't worry about the business of life. You just come and spend the day with the Lord. And so in the seventh month on the first of the month, they took a day off. The Feast of Trumpets. Now the seventh month, you need to understand, and you Bible students know this, there were two ways of looking at the calendar in Israel. There was the civic calendar which always we began with Tishri, which is our September-October time frame, Tishri, and that would be the first month of the civic calendar. But there was the spiritual calendar, which was more important to God, and that always began in Nisan, which is the month of Passover. That the calendar year, spiritually, as far as the Lord was concerned, began in the spring with Nisan. And then ran all the way around in the seventh month then would bring you around to Tishri, our fall, and at the beginning of the Jewish New Year because then, then they would start the new civic calendar. Okay, Does that make sense? So there's two ways the same calendar, but God says, no, the first month is going to be Nisan in the spring. Understanding that, you know the name of this ancient custom, this Feast of Trumpets. Familiar to most people, it's called Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of Trumpets. It's the Jewish New Year, announced by the trumpet blast every first of Tishri. And the ancient rabbis even taught that the first day of Tishri coincides with the first day of creation. Now, we don't know if that's absolutely accurate or true or not, but that's what they believed, the ancients. believed that Tishri began the first day of creation. That's why they ran their civic New Year beginning with Tishri. The day that God said, "...let there be light." And on that day, there was life, and God saw that it was good. Well, that would then begin this. And so Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, blow a trumpet, have a feast, give a sacrifice. And that's about it. There wasn't much to it. Kind of like Thanksgiving. That's why I love Thanksgiving. There's not much to it except eating and thanking. Just eat, thank God, and eat some more. And thank God some more, and eat some more, and just just showing thankfulness to the Father I love that we were in Costco the other day looking around and of course they've got all the Christmas stuff out and and there's still the leftover Halloween stuff and there's all the holiday stuff and you realize there's just not much you can do with Thanksgiving they had a Thanksgiving platter for sale and I pointed it out to Cheryl and I said isn't that great here's a holiday that you just can't commercialize because it's just about thanking God well Rosh Hashanah is like that it's just blow a trumpet. Have a feast. And of the seven major feasts of Israel, Rosh Hashanah is one of the least complicated. Just go and blow. You know, blow the trumpet and let it be heard. But as uncomplicated as it is, Rosh Hashanah remains a powerful feast day, even today, in the lives of the people of Israel. Very significant. Numbers 29, verse 1. God repeated it. He said, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall also have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It will be to you a day for blowing trumpets. A day for blowing trumpets. Trumpets were blown a lot in Israel. In fact, the priests would blow the trumpets all the time. In fact, every month on the first day, two silver trumpets were blown to announce the beginning of the new month. But the trumpet of Rosh Hashanah is not the silver trumpet, not the trumpet blown all the time and often, but it's the shofar, that ram's horn, that they would blow in Israel for specific reasons, the shofar. And so as the ram's horn sounded, the people celebrated the new year, the feast of trumpets, or the holiday you could call shofar, Show good, right? Okay, Psalm 81, verse 1. You know, you can't talk about the shofar without using the pun at least once. I can't. You're right, I can't. We've been doing this for seven years, and far, I don't think I've missed a single one. <laughs> Psalm 81, verse 1. Sing for joy to God our strength. Man, it just starts out good. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, strike the timbrel, the sweet-sounding lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet, and that word trumpet there is shofar in the Hebrew. Blow the trumpet, the shofar, at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. And in Psalm 81, Asaph illuminates not three seasons. Remember uh, a week ago Sunday we talked about three different seasons of Israel represented by three trees the vine and the fig and the olive. Well, we're not going to see three seasons in this psalm, but we will see three reasons for blowing the shofar in Israel. There were three specific times that the shofar was to be blown in Israel, as prescribed by God. And the first one is here for the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. The first reason is a blast of the past. If you're taking notes, you might jot that down. A blast of the past, blowing that shofar on Rosh Hashanah was to remind the people to commemorate their miraculous deliverance to and from Egypt. To, to and from Egypt? Why? Well, I get the deliverance from Egypt, but what do you mean to, to Egypt? Well, they were delivered both ways, if you recall. They were delivered to Egypt as well as delivered from Egypt. God was looking out for the family of Jacob all along. In the family of Jacob, there are 70 people up there in the, the promised land. And starvation was hitting and famine and so the brothers were sent down and of course you know Joseph was already there. And God planned that and gave them a deliverance from famine to Egypt. Brought them into Egypt. Joseph himself said in Genesis 45 verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. By the way, first time the word remnant is used related to Israel is right there. Where Joseph says, God sent me to preserve a remnant, to be sure that Israel survived, to be sure the people of Jacob, my father, and my brothers and our family would be kept alive. He said, Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And think about it, who could do such a thing but God? This is not how we think. We think about making a big success by climbing the corporate ladder, by hard work, by getting ourselves there. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. And that beautiful coat that his father gave him dipped in blood and a was was propagated there. And Joseph then goes into Egypt, sold as a slave, and he begins to rise a bit, but then he gets shot down and sent to prison. You know the whole story. But this is how God works to save a people. In an unimaginable way, but... God's got a great imagination. So Israel was delivered to Egypt, and then 400 years later, when slavery became heavy, they were delivered from Egypt as well. And Asaph alludes to this. In fact, in the blowing of the shofar there on Rosh Hashanah, it's looking back and it's remembering the to and from Egypt. It's going both ways. Why would you say that? Well, because verse 5, Asaph says, he established it for a testimony in Joseph. And so he draws us to the picture of Joseph who was a picture of the Savior of Israel as Israel was led to Egypt. Asaph likes to point out Joseph. In fact, Asaph now has done this a couple of times in his songs. He points to Joseph and names Israel by the name of Joseph because he's portraying salvation. He established it for a testimony in Joseph when he went throughout the land of Egypt. But in Egypt something began to happen. You know the slavery became heavy. The people became burdened. They cried out to God. And something began to happen there at the end of 400 years that had never happened before. Verse 5 continues, I heard a language that I did not know. I heard a language I did not know. It wasn't Egyptian, by the way. That wasn't the language he's talking about here. I heard a language I did not know. What he's saying, what Asaph is describing here is, I heard a voice I had never heard before. The people of Jacob, the Israelites, heard something, heard a voice, a language they had never heard before. Oh, they knew about God's promises to Abraham and, and Isaac and even their father Jacob, but God's promises and God's speaking was always to a man now for the first time, God was revealing himself to a people and not just a man. Exodus chapter 6 verse 2, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, "I am the Lord Yahweh and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So the other guys they, they knew God as God but didn't understand the more personal perspective of Yahweh. Now, as if speaking a whole new language, God is going to reveal Himself to His holy people to Israel. And He reveals His name. Now, appropriately here, God begins to speak. In fact, at this point, you could say that Asaph writes the first five verses, or pens them. God speaks the last 11 verses of this psalm. Watch this in verse 6. God takes over. I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Meribah. And there in three verses, they're power packed with providential reminders of God's deliverance. Several things that he mentions here. Verse 6, he says, I delivered you, in essence. I delivered you from the basket. You were freed from the basket. That word basket there in the Hebrew could also be translated brickloads, and I like the word, it's dude. It really is. If you're transliterating D-U-W-D, dude, that's the Hebrew word for basket. So God said, alright dudes, I'm going to deliver you from the dudes. From the basket. From the brickload here. I delivered you. In fact, keep your finger there and turn back to Exodus. Second book of the Bible, chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Verse 8 tells us reminds us of the story. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply in, in the event of war. They will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. And so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and, and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks that all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. And God says through of the psalmist, He says, I delivered you from that. I delivered you from the brickloads, from the baskets, dudes. I got you out of there. But not only does God say in verse 6 of Psalm 81, I delivered you from the basket, He also reminds them in verse 7 that they were dumbfounded at the hiding place of His thunder. The hiding place of His thunder. Go over to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Keep your finger in Psalm 81 so you can get back there. See, this is, this is also training here tonight on how to go from one place in the Bible to the other without losing your place. See, God gave us five fingers, which I figure give us at least four good bookmarks you know, without dropping the Bible. And if you're using your lap, you could actually probably use all five fingers to mark your spot. Exodus 19, verse 16 tells us it came about on the third day when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. Note that. A trumpet. So that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke with God, and God answered him with thunder. With thunder. That's what he's talking about there in the psalm. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. Why a hiding place? Because it was out there in the wilderness. A safe place away from Egypt, away from all the nations. There at Mount Sinai where God came down to make himself known to his people. To all of Israel, So He delivered them from the basket. They were dumbfounded at the hiding place of His thunder. Verse 7 in Psalm 81 also says, I proved you at the waters of Meribah. Exodus 17. Go back to Exodus 17. I proved you at the waters of Meribah. I, I want you to see something here. You may remember this story. But the way it's written about in the psalm is interesting to me. I proved you. At the waters of Meribah. You might say, I demonstrated you at the waters of Meribah. Listen to the story. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? (laughs) Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? A little more and they will stone me. Another way to say this in the Hebrew is oy vey. What's going on Lord? And then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people. Then take with you some of the elders of Israel and take your, in your hand your staff which with you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel and he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Masa, it means testing or temptation. Meribah means chiding. The people tested the Lord. They chided the Lord there. And God says, and note this again back in Psalm 81, I proved you at the waters of Meribah. What does that mean? It means very simply, God knew they were going to thirst. God knew in bringing them to the place they would call Meribah, chiding, that they would be upset. He knew they would quarrel. He knew they would grumble. He knew they would get upset with Moses and God and they would whine and they would complain. He knew this. Why did He do it? He was proving their character to them. He was helping Israel recognize what was in their own hearts. Gang, that's what the journey to and from Egypt is all about. That's what the journey in Egypt and leaving Egypt is about, a proving of the heart. Why did God do it the way he did it? Why lead them out of Israel in the first place to take them into Egypt? Why not just leave them in Israel and make the famine go away? God could have done that. Why not just make Israel the one place where everywhere else was in famine, Israel is the one place where fruit was growing? He could have done it that way he didn't. He'd pulled them out and sent them away. 400 years and he then he brings them back on this Honestly, this bizarre journey. Why, God? I'm proving Israel's heart to Israel. I'm opening up their hearts so that they can look inside and see a demonstration of their great need for God's grace. Now, without God there in the desert, they would have died. Of course they would have died. It's ridiculous to think marching three million people out of Egypt and into the wilderness, you're going to survive that. Come on. But God was there providing, protecting... Pouring out His grace on the people and showing them what was in their own hearts. And that's why we go to Egypt. That's why God has brought us into this world and walks us through this world. It's why, as I've said before, you don't immediately go to heaven the minute you become a Christian. Because the job's not done. You can say, Lord, I believe in You, but we still need to know and see and recognize what is in our hearts. As a 10-year-old boy, I gave my life to the Lord. I had no idea. I had no idea what was in my heart. Now, I'm not saying that a 10-year-old can't know what's in his or her heart, but I didn't. I was a good kid. I was doing it because I was a good kid and because I wanted the other good kids at church to, to, to follow along and do the same thing and, and because I wanted to take communion. I thought that looked cool, and in my church you couldn't until you, know, you were a Christian. So, wow, I, I better do this so that I can do that. And I remember struggling with that, even 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old kid wondering, I'm not that bad a guy. What's the worst thing I've ever really done in my life? Why did Jesus have to die for that? I didn't know what was in my heart. It has taken 30 plus years for God to prove my heart to me. To demonstrate what is really in here. Gang, Egypt in the Bible, and we talked about this a lot when we studied Exodus, Egypt is always a picture of the world. You always go down to Egypt, and Egypt in Scripture draws up that picture for us of life in the world. And so back in the psalm, he he said back in verse 5 that it was established for a testimony in Joseph when he went throughout the land of Egypt. You see, Joseph is a testimony in the world of man's need for God. Our lives now are testimonies of our need, of man's need for God. Someone says, why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? Why do you believe in Jesus? Hey, look, my life is just a testimony that I need Him. By the way, so do you. That we all need Jesus. And that's why we remain in this world to come to realize that ourselves, and even as we realize that, to proclaim it to others, God's grace and our deep need for Him. Well, back in Psalm 81, verse 8, "Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The trumpet blast, Rosh Hashanah, a reminder, a blast of the past, a reminder of things past, of God's great provision and of His promises that would remain with Israel. And every first of the year, every beginning there, As they blew that trumpet and they offered the sacrifice and then they settled down for the feast, all the provision was from the Lord. He says this, I love it. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. What do you picture immediately when you hear that verse? little baby bird? Anyone else? That's the first thought that came to mind. To open your mouth wide and you little peep, peep, you know, and they're just and they're blind, they can't see a thing, and their little feathers are all wet and their wings are skimpy and they can't do anything but sit there in the nest and just wait for mama. And peep, you know? Just waiting. And then when mama comes, oh then the mouths are just uh, And that's what God is saying to his people, He's saying, Hey, open up. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And I don't think we buy that. I think we really struggle to believe that. Open your mouth wide, he says. I-, I will fill it. We were driving to Whitworth this weekend, going along Highway two, and it was a beautiful day and, and it was interesting because Cheryl and I were talking about how you know the fact that Hannah's at Whitworth at all is to us miraculous. Because I never thought we would ever have a kid well it's not that she couldn't go to college, I didn't think we'd ever be able to afford to send a kid to college. I still don't know how it's working. I mean truly I have absolutely no idea how this is gonna get paid for, how it's gonna work. But so far, so far, the provision's there. So we're driving along, we're talking about that, and just talking about God's blessings and 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 we're talking about Matthew six thirty-three and how true it is. You know, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. You've heard it a million times. But it's not until we absolutely apply that to our lives that we experience it as truth. Seek first His kingdom and His right. You put everything else to the side and you go after Jesus. And you seek the building of His kingdom. And you let that be priority number one. And God says, not Rick, not Joel Osteen. God says, open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. All be Now listen, I'm not talking prosperity gospel. It's not the false teaching that, you know, God will make you rich or you're going to be wealthy if you have enough faith. No, it's just trusting that God will provide for the mouth open wide. God will provide for the mouth open wide. But the mouth open wide believes and trusts that God is going to feed, that God is going to take care. Otherwise, we don't open the mouth at all. We're busy hunting around the nest trying to make it work ourselves. Well, we're driving along. And we had talked about Matthew 6.33. We Actually, that very verse, quoted it, and, and we're just thanking God, driving along Highway 2. Past Leavenworth, came out of Leavenworth up a hill, and we're driving. It starts to get drier at that point. And on the side of the road, we notice coming up, in the middle of nowhere, there's a little roadside chapel. A little place, and there's a sign there that says, you know, you can stop and rest and pray. I thought that was really cool. And there's another little sign right in front of it that just said, Matthew 6.33. And I went, thank you, Lord. Thank you for confirming your word that Cheryl and I had just shared earlier. And I kid you not, this kind of stuff, when it happens, I just get so excited. Matthew 6.31, do not worry then, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing or or how will we afford Hannah's tuition. No, that's not in there. I added that. It's personal for me. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God's got it. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God will provide for the mouth open wide. Psalm 89.15 reads, How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, or literally the blast of the trumpets, O Lord. They walk in the light of Your countenance. The blast of the shofar. A blast of the past. Remember, Israel, as that shofar would sound. doo doo." The people gathering around would say, yes, we have been blessed. Yes, He has always provided for us. Praise God. Happy New Year. But the blast of the shofar was not always a good sound. It was not always a pleasant sound. There was another sounding of the shofar with anxious and ominous tones. Second in your notes, it was a blast of disaster. A blast of disaster. The ram's horn also was sounded in times of dire warning and emergency. And it went like this. In fact, to play the shofar, it's, not, it's a hard instrument to play, but it's not that complicated. Basically, it's one note. But there are three different Hebrew words for how you play the shofar. It's amazing how they figure all this out. And the three words are tikai'ah, which is a long blast, and shevarim, which is shorter blasts. And then finally, the teruah, which is staccato blasts. When it's a time of disaster or danger or warning in Israel, they would blow one long blast, three short blasts, nine staccato blasts, and one long blast. And everyone in Israel knew exactly what that was. This is not celebration. This is warning. This is danger. This is disaster striking. Perhaps an enemy at hand or famine in the land, or some kind of difficulty. And this sound of the shofar, this particular playing, was heard many times in Israel's difficult history. Many times over the year, because of the blast of disaster that shofar blasted, it reminds us of the plucked vineyard. The ruined vineyard of Israel. Times of hardship. God says in verse 11, but my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So... I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices, exact opposite of Matthew 6:33. You can walk in the device of the Lord and in the care and protection and nurture and provision of God, or you can walk in your own devices. If you walk in the hand of the Lord, it's the blast of the past, the reminder of constant provision that God always gives. If you walk on your own devices, it is the blast of disaster, and you will get blasted if you want to do it on your own. You see, as much as God will provide for the mouth open wide, when people reject God, in essence, we're rejecting the hand that feeds. The Lord had this to say about Israel in Jeremiah. And you know, Jeremiah was the prophet who prophesied up to and, and through the captivity by Babylon. And the Lord said in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils. First off, He says, They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, He says, To hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's absolutely crazy. He said, The people first rejected Me, and then they went out and they dug and they built these cisterns to catch no provision. Because nothing was going to come. And even if it did come, they were broken and couldn't hold it anyway. It's absolute, What he's painting here is a picture of absolute insanity. It is foolishness. It's ridiculous. Do you understand that in our world, when people reject God, they're not just making a logical, informed choice. They're being insane. To reject God is the height of ludicrousness. It makes no sense at all. It's the little bird shutting its mouth and deciding, I'm going to make it without any help, without any parenting here. Zechariah 7.11, God says, they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. A stubborn shoulder. Note what he said back in verse 6. Psalm 81, verse 6, he says, I relieved his shoulder of the burden. I took the burden off his shoulder. And now in Zechariah 11, he says they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears up. The stubborn shoulder takes the burden back. And again, it's just ridiculous. Stubborn shoulder. You ever do that? You ever stubbornly take back from God the very burden that you asked Him to remove? Again, it's... It's almost, if it wasn't so stupid, it'd be funny. That we go to God and, and, Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two: Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. So we go and we cast our burden on the Lord and then we go home and we take it right back, which is why we're shaken. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. So why do we shake? Because the stubborn shoulder takes the burden back. Oh Lord, help me in this situation. And now I've got to figure out how to work it out. What? we give it to Him, let Him have it. You struggle, hand the burden over, let God take it. Well, that's not easy to do. No, it's not. It's called faith. And it's part of the walk that we're in. Cast our cares to the Lord. But we continue to fret and worry and stress about them, and God would say to us, am I capable of handling this one? Do you believe it? And if so, let it go, man. Well, how do we do this? How do we stop taking the burdens back? Well, I'll give you one way. One of many different ways. But we read this in Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. The help of my countenance and my God. And I love the word yet. One of the keys in handing our burdens and our trials and our problems over to God one of the keys in being able to leave them with Him is knowing that we have a future with Him. It's looking forward. Do you have things in your life that you look forward to? I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving. All my kids will be home. So I have that to look forward to. That, that time that's coming. So even on bad days, you go, yeah, yeah, but you know what? Thanksgiving's coming. The turkey's going to be big. And we're going to eat And Thanksgiving. Be thankful. And then we're going to eat. And we're going to be thankful again. And then we're going to eat some more. And I can't wait. I just love the holiday. But bigger than that, I've got something to look forward to in the Lord. I will yet praise Him. Not not just here in the barn. Not Sunday morning. It's not like Friday's going bad. I say, yeah, but I'm going to worship on Sunday. No, I will yet praise Him. I will be in His presence. I will be at His throne. I'm going to be caught up when He calls. I'm part of that. I have something to look forward to. And so when I've got a burden in my life and I hand it to the Lord, I can say, look, you take this, Father, because you said you would, and I'm going to focus on your coming. I'm going to look forward to that. We have a hope in a future. Jeremiah 29.11 There's a coming release. And there's another blast of the trumpet. A third time, literally, that the shofar was to be blown. And we know how the shofar sounds on Rosh Hashanah. Maybe you don't or haven't heard that, but there's a prescribed pattern... On Rosh Hashanah, it's longer than the warning blast and it ends with this long, drawn-out blast and it's, it's, a, it's a bigger deal. Longer than the, uh, the warning blast. And we know how that sounds. And as I share, we know what the blast of disaster sounds like. We, we have that blast down. You can actually Google that and, and, and hear it on the Internet if you'd like to. What we don't know, we don't know how the third shofar blast sounded. Why not? Because it was never used. Because the third blast never once sounded in the entire history of Israel. Remarkably, 4,000 years of Israelite history, and though God commanded it and heralded it as a wonderful thing, the third shofar blast has never been heard. Leviticus 25, verse 8. God said, you are to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years. How long is that, mathematics students? 49 years. So that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn, the shofar. Sound it abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. And it was a specific shofar blast and no one ever heard it. And God went on He said, You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee to you. And each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his own family every 50th year. In Israel, God said, here's what I prescribe for you as a people. It's not just a blast of the trumpet to take a day off like Rosh Hashanah. It's a blast of a trumpet to take, listen, a year off. 49 years of work and the people of Israel were given an entire year just to hang out. Just to go on vacation. But better than yet. Better than that. A year-long Sabbath celebration. Every debt would be canceled. Every Visa card and MasterCard cut up, gone, bye-bye. You don't have to pay it. Every single one. I mean, it's amazing. Every slave. Everyone who had to sell themselves into slavery because their family needed the help or whatever, set free. Every person received back lost inheritance and land. Everything was reset. Once every 50 years, and everybody got the year. Not a day, not a week, not a month. The year off. I mean, what, a, what an amazing thing. And it was never once followed. In all of Israel's history, Jubilee was always ignored. It's astounding. Israel blew it because they didn't blow it. You know? They messed up. Instead of blowing the shofar for that year, who wouldn't want to celebrate Jubilee? Well... As we near our midterm elections, let me remind you that those in power do not want to lose it. They never do. People who have power, who hold sway over the people, who have the money to spend, never want to give it up. And they will fight tooth and nail to keep it. I was listening just to a radio program today and they were saying, Man, once you get in there, once you get into Congress and you have a drink of that power, you don't want to give it up. Why do you think we don't have term limits for for, uh, the House of Representatives or the Senate? Because no senator, no representative wants term limits. Once you get in that group, you want to stay there, man. You're in Washington. You're a big wig and you have power. And so God said, once every 50 years, I want to equalize the whole thing. I want you to go back to what you had. No debts. No lost inheritance, no slavery. Everyone is free. Jubilee. It was the ultimate stimulus package. Jubilee was God's economic relief for the people. And had they followed it, it would have been marvelous. But the Jubilee shofar never sounded. Oh, the blast of disaster, they heard that. The blast of the past, they heard that. But Jubilee, no. God closes out the psalm with a future anticipation of the shofar, the trumpet of Jubilee, and what I would call a blast at last. A blast at last. Watch this. He says in verse 13, Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him. And their time of punishment would be forever, but I would feed you with the finest of wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. The Lord says, man, manna was one thing, but I would feed you with the best wheat. Water, yeah, water's good, but I would satisfy you with honey from the rock. You need to get this now. This is a little technical, but stick with me, check this out. The Lord is not saying in these last few verses, if only my people had listened to me. He's not saying, you know, oh, that my people would have listened to me, or that Israel would have walked in my ways, or I, I would have quickly subdued their enemies. He's not talking past tense here. In fact, this whole section... Is not past tense at all. The word would that you see there, and it's in verse 13 a couple of times, and 14 once, and 15 once, and 16 a couple of times, that word would isn't even in the text. The reason why the translators put it in there, added it to the text, is it's implied in the verb tense of the words listen and walk in verse 13, subdue in verse 14, be in verse 15, feed and satisfy in verse 16. What are you saying? Just this. Each of these Hebrew words are spoken in the active imperfect, meaning an incompleted action. Or better, that it's an action anticipated by the speaker. It's something the speaker is saying, I will do. This is something I am going to do. It's a blast at last. For though the trumpet of Jubilee never sounded, it's going to sound. The trumpet will sound. And these are all things God will do. Look at it that way. Uh, Oh, that my people will listen to me. That Israel will walk in my ways. I will quickly subdue their enemies. That's what he's implying. That's what he's saying. It's going to happen. Verse 16, I will feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I will satisfy you. Is what he's implying here. It's what he's saying. All of these things God is going to do future tense Isaiah prophesied this in chapter 64 verse 4 for from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him and Paul grabs that verse Pulls it into 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, and quotes it this way. He says, Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. God is saying, Oh, my people, my people, oh that you would listen. Oh, that you will hear my voice. Because I'm going to do all this and far more than you can imagine. When? When will this be? When will that third trumpet that blast be heard? In a moment. 1 Corinthians 15:52, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. All debts canceled. When that trumpet blast is blown. Every sin debt of death. All slaves released. From these dying bodies to imperishable, glorified bodies in that moment. At the sound of the trumpet, Jubilee. But isn't that just for the church? Isn't that a a church thing? Hey, listen, the church is here because Israel was here first, right? And we have our roots in Israel. And that third trumpet, that shofar blast, that Jubilee blast is for anyone who receives Christ Jesus as Lord. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. And so in this season we are the church which is not Gentile. Which is not Jew. Which is not something other. It is the people of God. But keep listening. Because the last trumpet sounds and it ain't over yet. It ain't over yet. After the last trumpet, God is going to enter into judgment with Israel, Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is... The psalm of the judgment of Israel. Watch this. God takes His stand in His own congregation. His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. You could also call this psalm the psalm of the judgment of the judges of Israel or those who rule. He goes on and says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know. Nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. In the fall, there are specific feasts of Israel. The feasts run all year long, or seven of them all told, but in the fall there are three specific ones that we have talked about before. That are all not just commemorative, but are anticipatory. In other words, they're all looking forward. Rosh Hashanah is the first, the trumpet sound, and it anticipates the rapture of the church. The blowing of the shofar in that holiday anticipates the last trumpet, the calling up of the church. Note this, though, the next thing that happens in Israel's time, 10 days go by. Rosh Hashanah, and then 10 days up until Yom Kippur. Those ten days are called Yomim Noraim. They're called the Awesome Days. And in the Awesome Days, that period between the blowing of the trumpet and Yom Kippur, where the people, the Day of Atonement, it marks a solemn time of repentance and confession. And there's a picture that emerges there, gang. The last trumpet sounds and the church goes up. And Israel enters into the Awesome Days. Days of confession. Days of tribulation. Days of repentance. Ending with a Yom Kippur of sorts, an atonement, a day of atonement. A recognition of Jesus Christ finally as their Lord. And it's painted in these holidays in a remarkable way. And after that last trumpet, what happens? Israel begins to wake up. Which is why the tribulation happens. It's part of the reason of the tribulation. That God enters into judgment with His people to shake them awake. Like me with my kids in the morning. Anna Marie said this morning, Dad, there are just times where it doesn't matter what you do, I can't wake up. (laughs) You can and you will. (laughs) And God shakes Israel awake in the tribulation. The tragedy is that Israel didn't have to walk in darkness at all. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 tells us the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And the light was Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, verse 1 talks about where this will happen. In Galilee of the Gentiles, a light will shine. And though the people are in a dark place, in Galilee, suddenly the light will dawn. We'll be there for the people who walk in darkness. The people, as the psalmist says, as Asaph says... They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. And so the people were in the dark, but the light came to Galilee of the Gentiles. And they didn't see it. And for the most part, missed it. John 1, 15 1, 5 tells us the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so after the trumpet sounds, the last trumpet, the church is caught up, raptured, taken home, and God enters into judgment with Israel. He begins to judge. As Asaph wrote, and the very foundations of the earth will be shaken to the core. All the foundations of the earth, he writes in verse 5, are shaken. And if you study through Revelation chapter 6 through 19, no less than five massive worldwide earthquakes are described. Not like earthquakes today that are regional worldwide earthquakes and the last one is the big one here I grew up in Southern California they always talked about could this be the big one hey you wanna hear what the big one is Revelation 1618 there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and on earth there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth so great an earthquake was it and so mighty shaking of the earth God is shaking his people awake Wake up, Israel. Wake up, my people. Why all this wrath? Why this judgment? Well, another reason for the tribulation, is you Bible students know, it ends with God's full wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world where God says, you refuse to accept that all that's left for you is my wrath. But that's for those who reject, for those who accept Christ who come to faith, even in the tribulation, the purpose God has of it is waking up the people to the light. And Isaiah 9, verse 3 says, You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in Your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as in the battle of Midian. But before that happens... Before Israel comes into her joy, God enters into judgment with Israel, and specifically with the judges. Watch this now, verse 6. I said you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Interesting verse. I said you are gods. What does that mean? Well, back in verse 1, it said He judges in the midst of the rulers. The word rulers there is Elohim. He judges in the midst of the gods. And then again down in verse 6, I said, you are gods. You are Elohim. And all of you are sons of the Most High. What's He talking about? Who are these gods? They're the judges of Israel. The human judges of Israel. So why does God call them gods? Exodus 22, verse 9. He said, for every breach of trust, whether it is for ox." for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, for any lost thing about which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. And he whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Judges, in Exodus 22, verse 9, the word is Elohim, which is the word, you know, for gods. The plural form of the word God, Elohim, for gods. Judges are referred to as gods. As Elohim in Israel. Why does God call the judges Elohim? Because judges have power over people. Even to decide life or death. To, to make judgment. At any time a person, whatever the role, any time a person makes judgment, what they're doing is they're sitting in the seat of the judge. Or at least after a fashion... They are like God in that they are making judgment on man. And so God even refers to the judges in Israel at a time as Elohim. So they were called Elohim. Because they were judging like God, but also, and don't miss this, also because God was the standard by which they should judge. And it's something our country is losing, gang. From the moment that we took So help me God out of the legal oath I swear to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth So help me God When that was removed from the oath we took a step further away from true, just, righteous judgment The judgment of man? What is that worth? I mean truly People say we need strict constitutional judges Uh, That sounds fine But is our Constitution itself even perfect? I'll tell you what we need in this country and in the world is people who will strictly judge by the standard of God Himself, by the standard of Elohim. And God in in speaking, judging the judges, judging He judges in the midst of the Elohim. And if the judges are listening to God, well then judgment is going to be sound and accurate. If His Word is the standard by which we judge, then we're making right judgment. But if we're judging by some other word or by something of man, our judgment will not be right. By the way, speaking of the righteous judge, you know Jesus quoted this verse. He quoted Psalm 82, verse 6. Keep your finger there and go over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And this may illuminate something for you. One of those strange moments... Where an interesting altercation was going on between Jesus and a group of Jews who were about ready to make a bad judgment call. They were picking up stones to stone him. Watch the story. John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus makes this comment I and the Father are one. God? Me? Me? God? Same guy. And it freaked him out. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Notice that Jesus' enemies knew what he was saying. Even his enemies knew he was claiming to be God. Jesus answered them and He said, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? Psalm 82, verse 6. Your own law says, I said you were gods, Jesus says. Verse 35. If He called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus goes on. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe in me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. So that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. This is interesting. He he draws from Psalm 82. Why? The Psalm of the Judgment of the Judges. The psalm of the judgment of Israel. He tells the Jews here, you know what you're doing? You are sitting in wrongful judgment of me. And what's he doing? He's saying, some of you guys need to go back and read Psalm 82. And then we'll have this conversation. Go back and look at what your law says and think about this. What was God meaning by this? He was talking to the judges about right judgment. Now you might say, well wait, didn't Jesus claim to be God? Yes, he did. He did. But their indictment against Him was incorrect. They rejected Jesus' claim to be God while ignoring the evidence. And that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, the evidence is here. Look at the works. Look at what I'm doing. The lame are walking. The blind can see. The deaf are hearing. And these things the prophet said Messiah would do Look at the work. Look at what I'm doing. But you're not looking at the evidence. You're just hearing the words coming out of my mouth and they offend you so you're upset and you are misjudging me, Jesus says. It's not that he wasn't God. Yes, he was claiming to be God. But the proof was there. And all they had to do was look at it. So Jesus refers them back to Psalm 82 because again, whenever anybody judges anything, we in essence put ourselves in the place of the Most High Judge. And so Paul said the following 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3 To me it is a very small thing that I may be judged by you or by any human court in fact I do not even judge myself I am conscious of nothing against myself yet I'm not by this acquitted The one who judges me is the Lord, he says. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul joins Asaph and Jesus with this warning. If we judge, man, we better judge accurately as children of God because we are like God when we enter into judgment when we make judgment calls we are putting ourselves in the place of God if you have to judge anything the best way to start is say Lord give me your discernment Lord let my judgment be righteous by your word and by your spirit by the way Mormons will also use this verse John 10 and, and Psalm 82 verse 6 you are gods the Mormon church teaches that all good Mormons will become gods one day If you're not a Mormon, you'll still go to heaven, but you're not going to be a god. Sorry. But if you're a good Mormon, you will ultimately rise up and become a god. You get to to be a god over your own little planet. That's, That's where the teaching goes. In fact, Brigham Young taught that Adam was the god of planet Earth. And that truly all worship of us on the planet Earth should be to Adam. Because Adam's actually the God over this planet, we should therefore be worshiping Adam. And I would say to Brigham Young, I worship the Second Adam. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the only true God and eternal life. But the problem is that when when Mormons say, "See, he says you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High," then we must be gods. Well, that's out of context because look at the next verse. Nevertheless, you will die like men. <laughs> I said you are gods. I said you're Elohim because you're in the place of judgment. But though you judge like God, nevertheless, you'll die like men and fall like any one of the princes. The princes. Remember what Israel means? It means prince of God. You'll die like one of the princes. God proclaims that judge of Israel or not. All judges, all human people, are frail, fallible, feeble, and fatal. You're all going to die. You are not gods like I am God. You are Elohim in the way that you judge like I am the great judge. And it's a great reminder that even our Supreme Court in our country is made up of fallible, mortal man. Verse 8. Arise, O God, and judge the earth. For it is you who possesses the nations. Asaph concludes with a call to the Lord to judge all the earth and not just Israel or Israel's judges. And a pattern continues to emerge here. Now watch this. The trumpet. The trumpet. Shofar. The blast of Rosh Hashanah and the church goes home. And the very next thing to happen is the ten awesome days God enters into judgment with Israel ultimately comes the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so there's a picture there. But after the church goes home, at that blast of the last trumpet, and after God enters into judgment with Israel, the last half of the the tribulation, there's a new judgment, and it is a judgment of the nations. Psalm 83. Psalm 83 is a judgment of the nations. We come now to the last of the 12 Psalms of Asaph. And historically... King Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, suddenly there is a threat, the Ammonites, the Moabites, a multitude of other nations that are going to come against Israel. And when Jehoshaphat realizes this, he he falls before the Lord, he prays, he calls on the entire nation of Israel to pray to God, what do we do, How do how do we deal with this threat coming against us? And then the prophet Yahatziel is raised up and he comes to Jehoshaphat and says, God's not going to let you fall. He will protect you if you'll trust Him in this. And Jehoshaphat does something that is just amazing. Do you remember the story? He gets a hold of the Levites and he says, here's what I want to do. We're going to send out the army. But before the army, I'd like to send the choir. I want the Levitical choir going first. Normally Judah went first to fight. No, no, Levites, I want you to go first and I want you to sing praises to God. And so they did this. Incredible faith on the part of Jehoshaphat. And as they're singing and praising, well, the enemies all around heard this worship and thought Israel knew something they didn't know, and they freaked out. And they fell apart, and they started attacking each other, and by the time the Levites came over the hill singing praises to God, they were all dead. They killed each other, turned on each other. Well, you said they weren't going to be able to fight us. Well, I don't know what you think is going on. And they just started killing each other. And they wiped each other out. And Israel just kept on praising God. And that's the background, that's the history, we believe, of this psalm. But there's more to it. Watch this, verse 1. Oh God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And oh God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. Now listen, treasured ones. The word is safan, and it's literally hidden ones. And there's a clue there that perhaps this psalm was not prophetic of what would happen with Jehoshaphat and the people, but what would happen much further down the line for Israel when they are God's hidden ones. Hidden ones? That hiding place in the wilderness. Midway through the tribulation. The hidden ones of God, protected in a place prepared for them in the wilderness. But there's more to it than that. There's more. I believe that this is a psalm yet to be fulfilled. Because the nations that are about to be described here, though rooted in history, are fruited in prophecy. Who are they? Watch this, verse 4. They have said, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind, against you they make a covenant. And who is this? Verse 6. The tents of Edom, and the Ishmaelites, Moab, and the Hagrites. Who is that today? It's Arabs. Read on. Verse 7. Gebal, and Ammon, and Amalek. Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Who's this? Ammon and Amalek. Jordan. The region of Jordan today. Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Who are we talking about? Tyre. Lebanon. Lebanon today. Philistia. Well, you know where Philistia is? Gaza. Who's in control of Gaza today? Hamas. Hamas enemies, sworn is enemies of Israel. Who's in control, or mostly, in Lebanon today? Hezbollah, enemies of Israel. Jordan, uh, there's a quiet peace treaty between Jordan and Israel, but Jordan still is going to go the way of the Arabic people before they would go the way of Israel. Reading on, Assyria has also joined them. Assyria today is Assyria. These people groups, Arabs, Jordan, Gaza, Lebanon, Hezbollah, Hamas, Syria, all of these, and note what it says, they have become a help to the children of Lot. The word help there is literally arm. They have armed the children of Lot. Okay, so we have Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, we have Hamas and Hezbollah, we have the Arabic people gathered there against and around. Israel, and they have armed now the children of Lot. Who are the children of Lot? Genesis 19, verses 37 and 38, tell us the children of Lot were two boys Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And I would suggest to you that the most likely contemporary candidates for the offspring of Moab and Ammon today are those who call themselves Palestinians. Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. Helping, arming the children of Lot. Arming the Palestinians. There is a currency to this psalm that is stunning. Let's not judge wrongly. And please understand, and this is difficult because I know we're we're casting a broad picture here. But when we say the Arabic people, it's not all Arabs. Just because you happen to be an Arab doesn't mean that you're set against Israel. Just because you happen to be a Palestinian doesn't mean you can't be a believer in Jesus Christ and be a saved brother or sister of mine in Jesus. Just because you happen to live in Lebanon or, or, or be uh, you know, a Jordanian or a Syrian doesn't mean that you're an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God because you've chosen to be. You're an enemy of God because you've set yourself against the people of God. And that's who we're talking about here is the stated enemies of God and of Israel who will be judged, who will help the Palestinians in a force against Israel. Verse 9, he says, "...deal with them, as with Midian, as with Sisera and Yavin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, and who became as dung for the ground." Love the description in Scripture. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. And those stories I'm not going to tell tonight, but they're in Judges chapter 7 and 8. You can go and read verses 9 through 11 are all from those couple of chapters. Those who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Note that. The war cry of the enemy is absolutely loud and clear. It is those nations who are dead set against God who would take the land of Israel for themselves. And when Ahmadinejad says we want to drive Israel into the sea, when he says, the leader of Iran, that we want the land that the Jewish people are on right now, he's part of this. And he is among those who set themselves against God because they would take the land And I, Boy, I would, I would caution against anybody touching the land of Israel, dividing the land of Israel, portioning it out for their own uses. These are the enemies of God. Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Verse 13, O oh my God, make them like the whirling dust like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest. Terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Fantastic. Note that. Do all this. Wipe them out, Lord. Why? That they may seek your face. And one of the amazing truths of the tribulation is that even in the torrents of God's wrath being poured out, hope is still extended to the enemies of God. Isn't that amazing? That even while God is punishing the unrighteousness and the sinfulness and the rejection of the world, He's still holding His hand out saying, you know, we don't have to continue this. You can be saved. Please, repent. Turn to Me. Come back to Me. Amazing grace. Do this, Father, that they may seek your name. But you know, a point will come where they don't, where they won't, and where rebellion will be dead set, the die cast. Verse 17, Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. And let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Some of the enemies will come to know Jesus Christ. Some of those dead set against God will come into the fold of God and will be saved. And they will declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But whether the enemies of God come to know Him or not, all will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2 10. At the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Three psalms of Asaph tonight. The psalm of the trumpet, the psalm of the judgment of Israel, the psalm of the judgment of Israel's enemies. And what comes next? Psalm 84. And we will talk about that Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, Lord, You are amazing. Your Word is astounding and we are so blessed by it. And we ask, Lord, that You will bless these words, Your Word tonight. Father, we, we hear You doing this over and over, and I have been truly amazed in the Psalms. You continue to replay this for us. This end time scenario, this picture of what is to come. You say it again and again and again, and the more you say it, Father, the more I recognize that You are a Father who wants His children to know what's coming. May we be aware of that, and may we look forward, Father, to Psalm 84, not just sharing it on Sunday, but to what it declares. How lovely are Your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. And we praise You tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.